0: the inside here oh 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 quick Pete looking
1: hi there welcome to pick and drive rugby we are the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven I'm your host Mitch join me this week is Lockie. Lockie, how are you, mate
0: very good ready for more rugby it's been one of the biggest weeks of rugby i can remember actually with everything going on how about you man how are you
1: yeah we've got a wallabies win to talk about which is only the second time this year that we can talk about the uh the men in orange getting the the w so very much looking forward to chatting through that We'll, we'll dive through uh world cup week four we've got one more week of pool games to go before we get into quarterfinals. doesn't look too good for the aussies but we won't get into that just yet You've been pretty busy over the weekend. Lots of rugby work for you. What have you been doing?
0: Oh, there's been plenty on, actually. We've had the Australian Rugby Shield on up at Ballymore in Brisbane, which has been a heap of fun. Um, For those who don't know, it's the sort of showpiece amateur event for Australian rugby. So that's, you know, Queensland Country Healers, New South Wales Country Cockatoos and Corellas, your smaller states like Tassie, South Australia, uh, some representatives from the Northern Territory. So we had 16 teams in total eight in the men's, eight in the women's, and um, a couple of really good games across that. I think ACT took it out in the men's again, the Griffins. Um, So they went back to back from their title last year, and New South Wales Country Corellas won the ladies' championship in an all-country final against Queensland Country Orchids. So a lot of names that you might not know, but I strongly encourage you to go tune in uh, we have full recaps on rugby.com.au and um full live streams as well. So some really good quality bush footy.
1: Awesome. So we'll touch a little bit on that at the end of the podcast and get uh some of your thoughts on that and maybe some of the other discussions around pathways and things that RA has been doing uh, in the past few weeks, which has been really exciting to see. We've also, as I said at the the start, we'll we'll do week four of Rugby World Cup. We'll talk about the wallabies, which is why everyone's here. Very much looking forward to that. And we'll also touch on the Wallaroos as well. So they played uh their second test against the black ferns for the laura o'reilly uh cup and unfortunately they did get beaten but we will try and be positive around that one and uh focus on some of the the better things that the Wallaroos did in that game uh for those that are following along at home or uh, are joining in on our tipping comp let's uh get into the results so as we said before this is week four of world cup so we've got one more week of pool games and then we're into the quarterfinals again if you haven't joined the comp yet Jump in, why not? It's probably a little bit late for you, but everyone's welcome. So the the codes up on the screen for you. The link is on our social media platform as well. So do get involved there. Uh, well done to Kakadu, who's currently taking out the comp in first place on three hundred and fifty eight points. Followed very closely by Felix Nine, who I believe was in first place last week. So Kakadu's had a, a really good week this week in his tips. Uh, Felix Nine in second place is on three hundred and twenty eight. So thirty points between the two of those. Uh, we've got. Um, Oh, that's a difficult name. O- Ori Lieb, uh, in third place on 316, and Na Williams in fourth place on 280. So there's a little bit of room between sort of fifth, fourth, fifth, sixth, and first place. But there's still a lot of rugby to be played in the tournament. So do um, don't forget to get your tips in and make sure you're still sort of putting those in weekly. And um, we've we've sort of what is different about this comp from what we've done in the past with Superbrew is that you get to pick or try and pick your opening try scorer each week. If you can get that, I got that this week against the New Zealand game, picked Will Jordan to be first try scorer, And I think it picked me up a, an extra 15 points or something. So there, there is ways to get back up the charts if you are not in the top 10. So do um, do keep with it. Lucky, do you have an update on how our fantasy is going?
0: Yeah, fantasy is ticking on quite nicely actually. Um- Quickly, you and I, have slipped down a little further than I would have liked. We're sitting almost bang in the middle. Uh, I'm on 52 with you hot in pursuit in 58th position. <laughs> but there are some people absolutely flying along at the moment. And then with the tipping as well, um, doing a bit better actually. I'm in 17th, you're in 23rd. We're yet to identify where Ando is. So speak up from your Balinese holiday. (laughs) Tell us what your username is so we can out you and let us know how you kick on. But make sure you jump in for your fantasy as well. If you haven't used your triple captain already, all the more power to you because I busted mine in the first round. <laughs> and if you did Darcy Graham uh, this week, then congratulations because you racked up just under 400 points.
1: And if you did like I did and went with Ruko Iwani, then you have basically wasted your pick. Um, and he only got less than 100 <laughs> points with the triple. So not too impressed with his performance this week. But nevertheless, uh, a week's time, those do reset for the quarters, I believe. So I'll be using those very wisely when we come to the quarterfinals. Uh, but I think that's it for the intro. Why don't we just dive into into the rugby and and get into the chat. Let's go. It's time to be optimistic. It's time to be excited. The Wallabies have recorded their second win under Eddie Jones in 2023. Their second win of the tournament in Rugby World Cup 2024 we did beat portugal 34-14. Now this wasn't a a good performance. I'll I'll say off the from the start from the wallabies. They did everything they needed to do though. They did secure a bonus point and they they didn't let portugal get a bonus point. So, Loki where should we start with this? What were you I guess what were your initial thoughts coming out of the game?
0: If you're marking this one, it's a C- in every sense of the grade. You've scraped over the line. You've done everything you need to do to, you know, keep Whatever fate, hope, I think Australian fans can try and hold on to about quarterfinals alive. They got the bonus point, but I don't think there was a point in this match outside that window between the 20th and the 25th minute where we scored three tries where we looked convincing. Mm. It was really interesting to see how we'd be able to back up from Wales and the disappointment of those back to back defeats. And by and large, I'd left with just as many questions, I think, as we've been given answers over this tournament. We had patches, that that one patch, but Portugal had a player in the bin, so how much stock can you put in? Three quick-fire tries in five minutes. I felt like the second half we locked down when we could have or should have even been pressing to score more aggressively. And there's still issues around our discipline and giving away penalties and admittedly two really soft yellows. I think we'll touch on that in a tick, but I still don't quite know what to make of this Wallabies team or in what direction it's headed. What did you take out of it,
1: Mitch? I think if there's one word I can use to describe this performance, and it probably can be applied to the whole campaign under Eddie Jones thus far, is rudderless. We just seem to be lacking in direction, lacking in uh decisions at at key times in this game the wallabies scored first they they got a penalty in portugal's 22 and we all know coming into this game that the wallabies needed to get to secure the four try bonus point yet their first decision was to go for the posts now i don't inherently have any issues with going for points we we know this is a rugby world cup and we know that uh you need to apply scoreboard pressure to your position to really uh squeeze them and and be as effective as you can in the tournament as tight as this is. But it's not a tactic that we have seen from the Wallabies in previous games. We haven't seen it against Fiji. We didn't see it against Wales. Those were the times where going for points were probably the best decision to make. And we didn't do it. Yet when we got, when we need to score four tries, the first opportunity we get, we kick for posts. It, it, it was really kind of confusing.
0: Yeah, I think it sort of lends into that uncertainty around the whole campaign that we've seen, you know, what Wallaby team is turning up and what plan do they have? And we still don't really know. I think sort of as fans looking in, we don't quite understand the the grand designs. I think from the get go, the opening sixty to 90 seconds, I was actually really excited by what I saw because the Wallabies played with great shape. We retained the ball uh for about i think it was 12 phases we sort of had a, a chip in front midway through so six either side of it kicked down the right touch line and we went 80 meters from the kickoff in total and then ball gets slapped away it's called a knock on and we didn't have that same direction for the other 79 minutes we obviously had you know those nice patches um i thought the way that Fraser McWright moved across the field for his try on the right in the second half. was really good awareness, good match awareness. But, I mean, I still can't put much stock in that three-try blitz that ultimately got us there. we got a a player in the bin, you know, Bell runs over the top of someone. We get the mall try. Um, Richie Arnold goes across from a nice bust. But, I mean, outside of that five-minute window, really, what did we see? to suggest that we are even a better team than Portugal. I mean, I thought Oslobas played really well. They threw the ball around they straightened up their attack nicely. I mean, and they crossed more than the two tries that they were allowed. They had some really near misses and we've probably got a fair bit of thanking to do for Andrew Kelloway, especially for that try-saving yeah. in the first half. I mean, what a tackle that was. That was brilliant
1: stuff. The thing that for, for me coming out of this game that I was – uh, unimpressed with from the Wallabies was that Portugal, as good as they were in this game, they're amateurs. They even said in their post-match after the uh, the Georgia game, like, we're, we've got to remember that we're not professional athletes at this point. We're not professional rugby players. And yet for us to only beat them by 20 points and requiring, as you said, requiring a yellow card, a player down, and just a, a flurry of points in quick succession... We should be putting them away by a lot more than that for this being our best team. Australia A played Portugal in a warm up, and their scoreline was pretty similar to what this one was. I think it was 30 to 17 or something like that. So it was a pretty similar scoreline overall in that game. But we should be putting a lot more points on them. And to Portugal's credit, they put us under a lot of pressure and they kept with us for the majority of the game. I mean, they scored first, they scored a really good try first up in the opening 10 minutes of the game which was just a really poor decision um, from our defensive line to, first of all, be so far in from their wing. Marika Corabetti is always consistently at this World Cup marking the man inside his channel with a player outside him and then biting into the line, shooting up out of the line when all he needed to do was sort of follow the ball and and shimmy that player into touch. He shoots out of the line in no man's land and they run through and score outside him. Like, that's a great try from Portugal, but that's not a try that... a a top 10 tier nation in the world should be allowing at a World Cup. I I
0: agree. But you've got to say that was a hell of a ball from Thomas Appleton, I think. That was just gorgeous flat pass, you know, left to right. Imagine if we'd been seeing some of that throughout our World Cup, I would have been calling that one of the tries of the tournament. (laughs) But, yeah, I think you're right about that killer instinct, I think we can call it, because after those three quick tries, I know I've harped on in that block, but that's where you flip that killer switch and you just start scoring and will. That's what we've seen teams like Scotland, South Africa, Ireland, New Zealand, France do really effectively. Um, coincidentally, the top you know, five teams in the world throughout the tournament is you know, flip that switch from a 20-point margin, then it's suddenly 50 points and they're able to execute you know, ruthlessly. And we had a moment there where just after those three tries, Izzy Parisi busts through the line, and we march up the field again, it looks like we're about to you know, go in for the kill, go for the jugular. And inexplicably it breaks down for us. We don't capitalize from the penalties that we get inside the attacking 22 again. And then we don't score until Fraser McWright crosses in the second half. You know, That was the moment there where I think Australia could have had a defining block of time where we put four, five, six tries on and show that we're capable of putting these teams away and show that we're a cut above, I think we missed that opportunity to show that we're a cut above at the mm-hmm. moment. So I'm really interested to see um, your take on whether the Wallabies are you know, a cut above at the moment because it didn't <laughs> look like it on the field.
1: We need to talk about the selections in this game. So Carter Gordon again was left out of the 23 by Eddie Jones. He was initially named on the bench and he did pick up an injury leading into the game. I believe it was on Thursday morning or afternoon in training that he picked up a a niggle and wasn't fit to be featured in the 23. So Samu Krebi comes onto the bench as a replacement. Now that's the second point. Samu Karevi I'll get to that in a minute. But We've got Ben Donaldson at 10. We've got Ben Donaldson at 10. We've got Andrew Kelly at 15. We've got a completely new centre pairing that we haven't had at any World Cup game so far in the tournament, Isaiah Parisi and Lalakai Fichetti. Now, as good as they are and as as much cohesion as they have at at the Waratahs and they are the centre pairing for New South Wales, they have no minutes together in a gold jersey starting for the Wallabies. They have no minutes with Andrew Kelly behind them. So, again, we're talking about this consistently week in, week out. We were talking about this in 2019 and that was one of the, the killer in- instincts for Michael Checker was that he just didn't know what his best 23 was and he was consistently chopping and changing throughout the tournament. Again, four years later, we're doing the same thing. We've got players coming in. They're playing out of position. They're playing with players they're not familiar with. How can we expect this team to be a cohesive, uh, well-drilled unit that's led well, that has key understanding of what they need to do at certain areas of the field when you've got new players coming in consistently week in, week out?
0: You can't. You can't. And it also boils down to having that connection throughout the year. Yes, you know, Lafacchetti and Izzy Parisi playing together at the Tars. You know, often that's been outside Dono or with Dono at fullback. But in what world do we expect, you know, an internationally-based Samu Karevi? who's been partnering occasionally with Ikitao or Parisi or others throughout the year, suddenly gel with Geordie Pattaya as an outside centre who's yeah. still finding his feet. Why would we expect those combinations to work effectively if we don't lay the foundation early, either through, mm-hmm. through the super club systems in Australia or whether people are playing together abroad? At, that, at this point, I'm not really fussed how you're doing it, but there needs to be a cohesive base between those key links, like your 12, 13, your 9, 10, you know, having links between your, your hookers and your locks. I mean, we've just, it's a bit of a patchwork that we've seen um, Eddie pick from so far this year. And I think, you know, when we do a bit of a post-mortem on this selection, as you've highlighted, is going to be the biggest uh, of Eddie's downfalls of this World Cup. I think we can say, you know, sure, we're not out of it yet, but we're all expecting Fiji to win comfortably against Portugal, I think we can say. And I don't think we'd be in this position without some key players who have stayed at home for this time. So we're gonna have some really interesting conversations, I think, over the next month, um, dissecting how the World Cup looks, even if we do you know, inexplicably make a quarterfinal and roll on. But I'm, I'm excited to really sink my teeth into that autopsy later on.
1: Wake up, Lockie! wake up. You're, you're in Wait. dreamland right now. Wait you wake up there's no chance there's realistically no chance that fiji aren't going to get a losing bonus point no, against Portugal. as good as portugal was against us there's just no there's no chance my going back to the point i mentioned before around samu karevi it's come out in the post-match presser that eddie jones's backup fly half option should ben donaldson go down this week was to throw samu karevi in at 10. That. In itself, that decision deserves to be instantly kicked out of any rugby club in Australia. That's just ludicrous to be at a world cup, to not have a backup fly half option when your primary fly half option goes down injured and then to throw in a center and just say, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll do Samu Krevi, the player that has the least amount of cohesion than anyone else in the squad. Yes. Potentially Geordie Pattaya. I would say, okay, well, he knows Tate, you know, he knows some of the reds players. Lalakai Fiketi, he knows Donaldson. You could potentially draw a line there, but Samu Karevi being your backup fly or your third choice fly half option, ridiculous. I thought it was Josh Kemeny. But that, that's the other thing we'll have to talk about in our post mortem, too. What's the go with the utility option? He's been talking about the utility for weeks and weeks and weeks in all of his teams he selected. He's got this utility option, yet not once did we see Josh Kemeny pop up at fly half uh, on the wing. Did we ever see Ben Donaldson packing in the side of a scrum or? Um, Dylan Peach even make a squad. So, geez, it's crazy. Let's get back to the game, though. The one positive we can be somewhat excited about is that after countless efforts this year, the Wallabies got a try from a rolling mall.
0: <laughs> and we also conceded one from a push-over try and should have had one from a mall. So you've got to take the good with the bad. But, yeah, we finally saw it, and it came easy too. And it makes you it makes you think about you know how much of a weapon... That did used to be. I think, you know, we saw that core of the Brumbies team and, you know, the McKellar ball and the Larkham ball and I think it was Phil finger at the time, just scoring tries for fun through the years for the Brumbies and then feeding that into the Wallabies. But I, I miss it. It's a funny thing to say that you miss, um, you know, having a, just an effective rolling ball. But just through some of these games on the weekend, um, the Springboks did it with such effect against Tonga. We've seen teams like France lean on it already throughout the tournament, and you forget how useful and how pivotal even that rolling mall is. So for us to finally go over is great, but I mean, we could have had it a couple of games earlier maybe.
1: And we probably could have done more than one in a, in a season. Like how many attempts did we have uh, under Eddie Jones this year in our eight games? How many attempts did we have at the rolling mall? It would have been... 15, 16, and we scored off one of them. So it's just not good enough, considering that the players, the stocks of players that we have, that Dan um, Palmer comes from the Brumbies, has been integral part of their d- mall attack and their scrum dominance in Super Rugby Pacific this year, comes into the Wallaby setup and for some reason is shifted into the lineout tactician and isn't given control of the scrum at all. And we just don't look dominant in that area at all this season. It's just, again, mind games by Eddie, just utter confusion. And the fact that we haven't scored more points from that set piece is just a worrying sign that hopefully in 2024, if Eddie Jones does continue in the role, it's something he needs to focus on.
0: Totally agree. And it comes back down to tournament rugby, right? We see time and time again, rugby world cups, barring 2015, where you had a team of legends in that all black side every world cup winning team has been built on set piece and has been built on a goal kicker our set piece hasn't fired and ben donaldson currently is not a gun goal kicker i don't know what we you know, have to you know try and reframe to hammer down those two points but you don't win world cups without those two things and we haven't yeah. shown enough to earn i think at this point a quarterfinal spot or deserve our place in that playoff field. So plenty to watch on. And then as we start to unpack some of these other games, Mitch, we're going to see, you know, that the metronomic kicking and the set piece is what those big five teams are rolling out this tournament.
1: I mean, it's so hard not to just keep asking these questions of Eddie Jones and just saying what the plan was. We will do that in a few weeks' time. We will do a deep dive. But, but as you said, it, it's World Cup 101 to have these set piece keys. And Eddie Jones is the most successful World Cup coach That he has had the most success out of any individual in world rugby for as many nations, and yet you would think that he would come into a world cup with those three things, set piece, goal kicking, and I guess a backup fly off as just un like decisions that you just, you can't not have, and we don't have any of them. So again, we will have to unpack that as we move forward. One thing that we've been speaking about for the wallabies for years now, for years, as long as Ando and I have made this podcast. Is there discipline? Now this game again, two yellow cards against a team like Portugal. Now Portugal did get a yellow card themselves, but it's just it's not good enough. The amount of penalties that we're giving away, that we're playing twenty minutes of the game with a player down, just and, and these these yellow cards even overlap. So at one point, it, for multiple minutes in this game, we were thirteen players.
0: Can we talk about? this mirror image summer yellow because we saw the exact same thing in 2019 where at the time it looked like he's been yellow carded for running into someone too hard. And it looks like the same thing happens again. So for, from what I saw, Karevi's been you know, yellow carded, uh, you know, it was a touch before halftime for a collision leading with, was it leading with the forearm? And he's been done for dangerous contact to the head i'm sorry but in what world is your head supposed to be at that height regardless trying to tackle samu Karevi? what why are you charging in like that why are you even in a position to put yourself at risk as the tackle and then secondly rant ongoing why did he do it again why did you do it again we've seen it cost in a world cup and imagine imagine if that doubled down and something spiraled out of control without a karevi on the field i might have got the timings wrong but i don't understand the penalty for starters and then i don't understand why you would repeat it even if that's the case i talk talk to me about this mitch i'm so, so upset for
1: mine the for mine, the issue came from the fact that he lifted his elbow and that's what the referee and the team were talking about. The fact that his elbow was up and therefore by lifting his elbow into contact, he's put his arm and his forearm well, his, his fist and his wrist and his forearm in a dangerous tackle in a dangerous situation between himself and the the tackler. So when he then makes contact and goes to palm, he makes contact with his forearm to the player's head. Now. Say what you will, it's it's poor technique why he needs to lift his elbow up so high to do that. He's just made a mistake in that instance. Whether it's warranted a yellow card or not, I don't necessarily agree with. I, I would have been happy with a penalty, but I, I can understand that where they're coming from and that they're saying that, you know, look, you, you, he's, made, he's made contact with the player's head. It's the same as making shoulder contact in a tackle attempt. Um, the fact that it's happened twice in two World Cups, I wonder if they do go back in, and somehow have i don't know like they're just aware of that it happened in 2019 and so they're like oh he's done it again let's let's pull it up because there has been instances like this in other games in this world cup there's been instances like this in other games in the past four years that haven't been penalized that haven't been looked at in such a way i do wonder if it's whether just the way that samu krebi runs in that he runs so upright and sort of his shoulders are back he's not really leaning forward that his momentum when he comes into contact sort of shifts straight into that ball carrier as he arrives but uh the fact that he's been pinged twice now is frustrating from an Australian fan
0: uh, it is frustrating but also the to, to me and maybe I'm maybe I'm underselling or overselling the safety element I'm not sure but th- this is a high impact collision sport and I think what we saw was a a rugby incident so if you're uh, getting yourself in a position to tackle, he wasn't running in, you know, with an elbow pointed towards and trying to spear him like a fish. You know, this is, this is, this is, a, <laughs> this is a rugby collision. I, I don't think there's anything sinister yeah. about those kind of contacts. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm in the wrong here. But for that to be a yellow card when we've seen, you know, head-on-head, high-impact, no-mitigating factors in other games that have gone unsighted and unpenalised, that's i think that's the root of this frustration you know i look to uh, incident like the the jesse creel incident um against was it scotland or ireland where he's you know collected someone head on head front on at high speed and the referees just played on whereas a glancing blow in the act of a palm is considered a yellow and it's, it's these decisions it's i don't think it's the referee's fault by any means but it's the 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 overarching management of rugby and how certain things are officiated that drive this frustration. I mean, and we're people that you know watch rugby and breathe rugby. You know, we adore it, and we're still getting pissed off by this kind of stuff. So, what does yeah. so the community fan know, think when you? See and that's the thing too. Like, we've got way. two
1: separate. Yeah, we've got two separate thoughts on it too. Like, you think that it, it shouldn't be a yellow card. I. You think it shouldn't even be a penalty. I'm happy with it being a penalty, but probably the yellow card threshold there. You've got head contact, so that always confuses things and they, they get a bit iffy when there is head contact there. But, you know, the line of is it, um, is it a yellow card threshold or is it just a rugby collision at the moment is just so great and we don't have clear enough, um, uh, clear enough wording in the law book to differentiate between the two. The other thing, too, I think, and and we'll talk about the other incident, the other yellow card, too, and how the TMOs approach that, but it almost feels, and it does feel a lot at, at this World Cup and in the past few years in rugby, that whenever the TMO brings something to the referee, the referee is automatically sort of at a decision. It's, I very rarely see a referee overturn it and say, actually, I, I think that's fine. I don't think that there's anything in that. That's just a, a rugby incident. Let's play on. Like in this instant, the referee has brought that to uh, to who? What was the referee's name in this one? Do you remember?
0: Uh, I can't. Sorry.
1: Anyway, so the Timo brings the the Samu Cravie incident to the referee, and immediately from that point, he's talking about whether it's a card or not. Yep. He's not just talking about whether it's a penalty. He's already made a decision at that point that yes, there has been foul play. We're in that. It's not. He's not just looking at it blind and and saying actually, I think that's that's fine. Let's play on. And, and that brings me to the other point too, the other yellow card that we got uh, to Matt Fazler. In that instance, that was really messy. The way that they went through that process was messy. The TMO is trying to show one thing. The referee is looking at something else. Then Matthew Renal comes in and starts talking about something completely different. And then the whole the whole process takes five or six minutes where everyone's just standing around not really knowing what's going on.
0: And that's exactly, I think typifying what we're so frustrated about. There is not a clear line of process and procedure to make TMO and MO decisions at these events. So five or six minutes is lost spectators, for my mind. If you're a casual fan tuning in and you've got three referees standing around talking about a collapsed mall over a try line, you're not waiting around for five or six minutes watching replays of, you know, people falling over each other. You know, this isn't, you know, highlights reels. This isn't, you know, a recap of the game. So far they went frame by frame for that entire duration and it bored me. I was over it. So those kinds of incidents are going to drive people away from engaging with people watching.
1: I think controversially, potentially, I, I don't know. I'll get your thoughts on this. I think they got this whole process wrong. So what happens in real time is that they give the yellow card to Fessler and say that you've collapsed them all, and so you're off. 16, golds, come here, you've collapsed them all, off. And then the TMO interjects and says, we need to check this try. And so we need to go and have a look whether uh, number two, I believe it was, actually scores the try or not. And then through going through that process, they realise that he dropped the ball, from knocked it on into I think it was Fal Masili coming through to tackle him. But my my issue was with that whole process is then if 16 Fessler has come through and collapsed the mall, then how is it play on and how are they allowed to score off it if the mall's collapsed? So has he either collapsed or has he not collapsed them mall? So you've you've just said that 16 hasn't collapsed them mall yet it's play on and so then they've potentially scored. Like, I feel like going through the TMO process, they kind of over overlooked the thought that Feza had done anything wrong.
0: I mean, you're right I wrong? you tying my brain in the there. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that situation, Does if that the sense? ball is collapsed, but the ball is playable, then it's advantage, right? So then he would have scored a try under advantage, but it's knock on. So you go back for a penalty, in which case it's a card. But for my mind, if you have a collapsed mall in a try scoring position and the collapse has been cynical then it's a penalty try and an automatic
1: card but if you've collapsed that's the ruling that is the ruling by the law book if you've collapsed the mall in the process of it scoring a try Mm. then it's a penalty try but Fessler doesn't actually stop the mall at any point he comes through and sort of attempts to tackle the player with the ball realizes that he's sort of gone off his feet let's go and the mall keeps going so he doesn't actually effectively collapse the mall at all and the player with the ball then goes on to try and score the try. So, it, what foul play has Fessler actually committed in that instance? The mall hasn't collapsed. If the instance that a mall goes to ground, the ball doesn't have to come out of it. The Wallabies are well within their rights at that instance to just dive over the top of it and keep it in there. It's a collapsed mall. It probably would be a penalty try in that instance, but that's not what happened. The mall continued. So, I, I was just sitting there watching it going, well, can we bring Fessler back on because he actually hasn't collapsed that? Like if he had collapsed the the mall, there's no way that the guy holding the ball can then try and score the try. Can he? Cause he would have been taken to ground. Does that make sense? It, it does
0: make sense, but it also proves our earlier point that it's too hard to officiate at this point And that we had, it's just too complicated. There's too, <laughs> there's too much. There's too much that can go wrong. And there's too much that people are looking for to go wrong. And that simplification of laws around, you know, without issuing safety, the simplification of some of these laws, I think, is critical for the long term success of Australian rugby. Not, you know, dumbing down the laws or making it easier for people to get off without play, but just simplifying it so we don't have situations where the referees are going on about it for, you know, six or seven minutes in real time at a World Cup in front of a crowd that was, you know, pretty spicy, I thought at times incident and you know <laughs> booing kicks at goal having a crack at the aussies having a crack at eddie in particular um there was it was an interesting atmosphere but you bang on this was What's just, going on this was a strange just couple of minutes that block
1: yeah and the, and the fact that the tmo thought one thing the referee thought something else and then the touch judge thought something else as well just confusing the whole thing oh, was confusing was a mess we've we've spoken a lot around this game though was there anything else and we do need to move on i'm conscious of time is there anything any sort of final comments? Or anything else you wanted to focus on in this game anyone that really stood out to you as um a really big impact on this game or someone you might have expected to see a little bit more from
0: uh i thought izzy parisi had a pretty good game i was fairly happy with you know, him on that side of attack i think that's always been his you know strongest attribute is his running game a couple of good line butts. there was there was one moment though and i'll sort of leave us hanging on this um that stood out for me and it was towards the end of the lineup to Corabetti's, um try, which was ultimately our last try. We make a big line break, bust through, and then we have maybe a, a six on two overlap out to the left. And Isaac finds that the water, runs directly across field and cuts off any opportunity for us to use that overlap. And it was actually quite fortuitous that we eventually got close to the line and Korobedi just Korobedi his way over. But just the the game sense at that point to not look up, I feel like maybe that's what's defined along with the ill-discipline and, you know, strange selection. Not playing what's in front of you might just be the root cause of what we've seen at this World Cup because I thought at test level that's, you know, unconscionable, you know, running across the field on a 6-2 split and almost bombing a certain try but, I don't know, maybe I've been too down about this game. Have you got a bright spark to finish us
1: on? Um, I've got a point that we'll finish on in a second. It's the next slide of our slideshow. The, the, the final thing I wanted to just touch on was, uh, and, and you briefly sort of mentioned it, was just our, our. there was no clear understanding of what the game plan was, and there hasn't been a clear game plan throughout this World Cup. And it felt very much like the first half, we had one style of game plan, and in the second half, we had another one. Like it felt the first half like it was just like it has been against Wales, like it has been against Fiji, single runner, one up hit offs, hoping to bust the the game line and just sort of big forward pack dominance. We did that in the first half. We got a few tries from it. Angus Bell burrowed over. We got a, we got the, um, the driving mall. In the second half, it seemed like we resorted more to a kicking game, similar to what we did in South Africa in the first game um, of the rugby champs this year. We were more inclined to kick the ball away and sort of try and test Portugal more tactically in the air, which hasn't really been, a, a key element of our game this year. And it didn't seem like at that point we didn't have the four try bonus point either. So I don't really know why we shifted from one style of play to another. And it kind of just added a whole nother layer of complexity to an already overcomplicated and confused squad.
0: Yeah, I, I think overcomplicated and confused might just be the title of this episode. Yeah, you know, even with a win, that's how he looked out there. And I think we can't sum it up any nicer than that.
1: Well, let's, uh, there's some news that's come out of Wallaby's camp today as we go to record this evening. And that is, and this hasn't been officially confirmed by Wallaby's sources, but it has been reported by Notch, uh, Stan and, and the wide world of sports. So um, they have announced that Wallaby's great Marika Corabetti is set to retire from Test rugby at the end of this year, and that is um, somewhat leaked by roommate and, and close friend of Marika Korabedi, Pone silly Now, he has said that nothing has been officially confirmed by Korabedi or his party at this point of recording, but Pone did an interview, I believe this afternoon with journalists in or potentially last night even um, in France and said that there was a few players that will be finishing up with the Wallabies this year at the World Cup. Now, one, I'll, actually, I'll get your thoughts on Marika finishing up first and then we'll we'll look at the Dan Palmer comment coming up next.
0: This is a funny one. Um, I haven't heard anything about it from any source, actually, so it's the first time I've sort of got my ears around it. But I don't think it would be surprising to see Marika at his last World Cup. You know, he's 31. I can't imagine that he's going to be running around, you know, for 2027, 20, given the crop of wingers that we've got coming through. Um, and, you know, the man is still an absolute monster smashing people over for Saitama Wild Nights and having a good time in uh, Japan League One. So uh, whether he's coming back, I think, is a kind of a moot point. He's in Japan and he'll play out a couple of years there. Um, whether it's an automatic retirement, I'm not sure. But it's, a, it's an interesting one. Marika, it's got up here on the tile for those watching um, via YouTube and for those listening. It says, Wallaby's great. And until this point, I hadn't actually thought of him about, you know, the kind of legacy of Marika Corabetti. But I think you'd almost have to put him in those kind of conversations, not immediately, but the body of work to pinch a Turanui line that Marika's put together over the past you know five, six years has been incredible, especially given where the Wallabies mm-hmm. have been at as a team. You know, there's a there's a constant out on the wing you know regardless of how we've been going who just gives it his absolute everything who is more often than not in a world 15 or a world 23 you know throughout this block of time and he he's a genuine superstar of the game for a while there um even as recently as last year you know he was the talking point you know with that huge tackle in Adelaide and the running rivalry with them PP and some great highlights out of the 2019 um, Rugby World Cup. You know that try against Georgia, where he you know runs through about eight blokes, goes 60 meters, and puts us back in front. You know he's a he's he is a superstar. So maybe you know if this is the end for him, and we always look back more fondly, you know after the fact, you know maybe Marika will be remembered as a one of his of the modern era.
1: Yeah, and I think you've also got to remember he's two-time John Eels medalist as well. So. He's up there with Michael Hooper as the amount of times he's won that mm. medal. And I mean, he's putting in, he's putting his hand up and putting in a good shift in 2023 as well to potentially go out on a high there. So I think looking forward though, as well, like, as you said, a great of the Wallabies backline, he's probably one of the first players currently in this team that's picked mm. on the ste- on the team sheet. So if we look to a Wallabies team in 2024 and we don't have Marika Corabetti's name on the team sheet, there's a glaring hole there. And Who's going to fill that spot at the moment? Yes, we have some upcoming wingers that that are showing potential, but I don't think they're going to be as impactful on the game that Marika is and has been. So um, all the best to him and his family for the future if this does end up being the last time that he does pull on the gold jersey. Um, He's had an incredible career with the Wallabies. We were uncertain, like Suli Vunavali, when he first came over into the 15-man code from League, whether he would stick it out long-term and what impact he would bring. But I don't think there's any... I don't think anyone would be remiss in, in throwing his name in with the likes of Matt Rogers, Lottie Takiri, and Wendell Saylor as some of the best players and the best talent that's come in from, from league into the 15-man code. And, and it's just it's so good to see that he has stuck through it and with it and that he will finish his career over in Japan, um, hopefully getting a lot of Japanese yen for his buck. Now, one of the other thing that's came that has come out in that uh, article by... Um, by the wide world of sports is a a quote from Dan Palmer. So he says, and if you're not following along on YouTube and you're listening along, I will read it out. So it is the end of the line for some people, Palmer said on Monday, some for whom this tournament will be the last time with the Wallabies. So there is a mixed emotions. We spoke about performance, but just trying to enjoy the time together. We've got uh, the thing is that we've got something, something, something these last few weeks. So he he goes on to heavily imply that there are a few players in this Wallaby setup that will be hanging their boots up at the end of 2023. We don't really yet have any confirmation at who that is and what those players are. Um, So I guess it's time to spitball and to sort of get our thoughts on who we think that might be and, yeah, I guess reflect on some of the players and the impact that they've had for the Wallabies in 2023.
0: I think off the bat we look at a James Slipper. I don't think that's a stretch to imagine that a 34-year-old, you know, dual prop, 21 World Cup caps, and he's a Bollibee captain in a Centurion. I can't imagine he's got much more left in the tank um, at test level. You know, he has signed on. You know, he's sticking around through to, I think, 25 with the Brumbies, so maybe he's the kind of player that kicks on and rolls on. Um, but, you know, I think if anyone's deserved it, it's probably slips. I can't imagine that he'll go willingly, um, but pretty cool to see him, you know, still kicking around after twenty one World Cup games. As far as people who are, you know, perhaps not of the age of James Slipper, but might be looking to shift away, oh, I mean, the bulk of that squad's so young. So yeah. you, where, where do you really look to? I mean, the back line probably has an average age of twenty five, generously given you know that you've got your Nowaces and your Faquetes and your Parisi's in there. You take McDermott, still young. I mean, gosh, you're going to have to help me out here because Slipper stood out for age, but he signed on. So yeah, help us help, Mitch. What have you got?
1: Samu Krevi is another one that springs to mind as a player who might not be featuring for the Wallabies again in the future. We know that he plays like Marika. He plays his, his um his rugby in Japan and that in the past, without a World Cup, I think that's been a pushing a, st- a bargaining point for him to be able to go to his club and say, look, Australia needs me I'm going to the World Cup you want this I want this let's see what we can do but without that uh lure of the World Cup I don't think he's going to have as easily uh to be able to barter to get out of his Japanese contract and to go and play just international rugby for the Wallabies and whether we we, I mean whether we need him is another sort of talking point as well we saw this week the the center pairing of Azai Parisi and Nella probably looked a little bit more cohesive and go forward than what Pattaya and Karevi has been in this World Cup to date.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good point, and I think I mean I wouldn't begrudge Samu Karevi if this was the time that he stops playing internationally. You know, he's been and a like like Marika actually. You know, such a standout. Um, in the gold jersey for the past you know, better part of the last decade, and you know when he first came on through the scene, was a young captain at Queensland as well. He was you know mooted as the next big thing in world rugby. I think um, it wasn't long ago actually. You know he was on a podcast with Matt Giddo, and you know gets the saying you know Karevi right now still is the world's best twelve. You know he's got that kind of rap, and it'd be a shame. It'd be a real shame to lose him, but he's already based overseas. I mean, these things happen, but I mean, really, Mitch, help me out here. Point point me to another wallaby in this squad that's you know been included in this squad that's north of thirty and would look like retiring from test rugby. Do we have candidates?
1: Geez, I mean, Dave Precki is is north of thirty, but you wouldn't expect with his test cap and his experience thus far that he'd be hanging the boots up just yet. So. Outside of that, it's pretty confusing what this kind of means and whether he's talking about potentially just the Wallabies environment in general. So Michael Hooper stepping away and Quade Cooper, some of those players that aren't necessarily in France right now but have contributed for the Wallabies in the past few years, whether that is taken into consideration. James O'Connor, another one. Um, yeah, interesting. It'll be interesting to see what and how that sort of shapes moving forward over the next few weeks and the next few days even and whether there is some announcements that do come out of um, Wallabies camp about some players that are sort of ending their career here in France because we don't expect to see much more action from the Wallabies in this World Cup, unfortunately. Now we have spoken a fair bit about the Wallabies. There are there is more World Cup um, games to talk about in week four. Let's have a quick break and then we'll dive into that content now. All right, let's get into the rest of the World Cup. So week four of Rugby World Cup 2023 has been run and done. Let's dive into Pool A. That's my pool. And then we'll run through the pools like we have the last few weeks. So the first result we had was against Uruguay and Namibia. Now, Uruguay did get the points there, 36-26 over Namibia. I think that is Namibia's last chance to get a win in this World Cup. And unfortunately, that has been done. Pretty tough World Cup campaign for them all up.
0: Yeah, a bit grim. It was always going to be, I think, as well, with um, France and New Zealand you know, inflicting a bit of pain. I was surprised, actually, by how well Italy went against them. Um, it would have been nice to see them at least get a bonus point, but I think Uruguay quickly became everyone's second team um, over there. They've been playing really well, and I think they deserved that one.
1: Well, the second game of the pool was New Zealand-Italy. Now, I think this result surprised a lot of people i definitely didn't see a result of this amount coming out 96 17 was the final score this really got blown away quite quickly by new zealand and considering that italy is in the six nations and is in the top 10 nations on the world rankings this probably isn't a good look for their campaign either terrible
0: look and it's a statement win from new zealand in every sense of the word you know they dropped that first one um against France and really this was the only big challenge in their pool for them to overcome so for them to you know rack up a cricket score is pretty scary to think that um you know whoever's facing them in the quarterfinals is going to be in for a bit of pain and um poor, poor Italy as well you know you saw all the commentary through the week about you know of course we're a chance you know can we do this that would have been printed up and slapped on every change room door in the kiwi um hotel and that would have just been a fuel on the fire so uh feel bad for them but um it's pretty scary to think what new zealand could do
1: very clinical performance from new zealand and i guess putting a lot of their doubters to or silencing a lot of their critics so far in this tournament so finishing up um and how the standings currently look for Pool a after four weeks we've got france in first place on 13 points followed closely by new zealand in second place on 10 points they're currently tied with Italy on ten points. They've all played three games, so I, I believe New Zealand has one more game. No, they've had their buy. I think Italy is due for their buy next. So um, New Zealand, you think, will pretty easily get out of the pool there. Got Uruguay on five points in Namibia. Um, played all of their games. Actually, Namibia is the only one that doesn't have a buy. There we go. Uh, um, it has their buy. It has played all their games, so they have the buy coming up. So. Um, Uruguay on five points there, so a fair few permutations to go around this um, this pool and how it shapes up. But realistically, I don't see a world where France and New Zealand don't go through to the quarterfinals.
0: Yeah, it's a tough one. I think there's a world. Well, it's a very small world, but um, Italy can still progress if they beat France. Um, that's the penultimate, what um, is the ultimate game of that pool? I'm pretty sure is France playing Italy, and oh, obviously Italy would need a full four points. Um, and deny France a losing bonus point to leapfrog them, um, assuming New Zealand gets the full five against Uruguay. So, you know, the stranger things have happened. You know, France have been known to drop a pool game at their own World Cup, famously against Argentina. You know, maybe we're in for a surprise, <laughs> but I think on current form, you'd probably doubt it.
1: Let's move across into Pool B now. This is your pool. Yeah, Pool B was an
0: interesting weekend. Um, the Scotland-Romania game was another statement game, I think, from a you know tier one against a you know, middling... Tier two side, you've got to feel for the Romanians. They've just been pumped from pillar to post throughout this entire World Cup so far. And um, the Scots, you know, played the kind of expansive attacking rugby that could potentially threaten Ireland um, in their big game coming up this weekend. So very keen to see how Scots and Irish go because there's a world in which both of them progress and the Springboks don't, but we'll touch on that in a tick. Um, Darcy Graham, four tries, um, player of the match performance, also threw in a try assist. And they went at a point a minute. It was pretty much a procession for that whole game. So not much, you know, not much chop for the Romanians, unfortunately. Um, Springboks. Springboks find themselves in a really interesting position now. Um, Destiny's really out of their hands. Um, They've played against Tonga and they did what they needed to do. Got the bonus points win, 49 points to 18. Um, A bit ominous, I thought, seeing uh, Andre Pollard back in the side and just kick beautifully. Off the tee, you know, that's been the only real concern from the Springboks. And then Andre Pollard comes in, nails his first four from four, and then they put him straight on the bench. So there's a huge weapon up the slave there for the Springboks if they do get to those, you know, semi finals, finals, like we expect, and have someone who kicks at 90 95%. So really interested to see um, the Ireland-Scotland game. We'll touch on it in our preview, but that's the big one out of these results because all three teams are still in the mix, Ireland-Scotland and the Springboks. Um, any takeaways from this pool, Mitch?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we've spoken about in the past was uh, how good the Springboks have looked through this tournament and that if there was one el- element of their game that they weren't quite firing at, it was taking their shots at goal and converting those into points. And Andre Pollard back this week alleviates all of those concerns, and we saw in this game that he just got every everything that he, he kicked for. So uh, pretty... Had he been available against Ireland last week or, or the week before, I think it was week two, then they probably win that game with the amount of points that they missed and how tight it was in the in the end there. So I think South Africa is getting themselves into a very nice place come quarterfinals time. I, I don't know if you you saw this uh, come out of the press conference. I don't know if it was in the team naming or the post-match presser, but there was a question asked to Nine, uh, Jacques Nainbar around sort of what happens in the scotland island game and whether there is a if he thinks that scotland and ireland might make some kind of backdoor agreement where they both do what they need to do to kick out south africa what, what did you what were your thoughts on someone having the gall to ask that question to the springbok coach oh for starters
0: it's shocking journalism i mean that's just a that's a leading question with only one answer in mind that you've pre-written down in your notebook. And, of course, he bit at that. It's Africa. You know, everything's a conspiracy. The refs are this, the refs are that, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> um, And he was always going to bite and say something, you know, like it'll be very disappointing or something like along those lines is how it's panned out. You know, it's just a, it's a huge fluff piece, unfortunately. Um, no one is going into this with any inkling or belief that match fixing goes on at this level. And it's you know rubbish, to be frank, that that yeah. would be the case. It takes a very specific scoreline um, and iterations, I think, for Scotland to win. I think they have to win by eight exactly or something like that, you know, deny Ireland a losing bonus point to kick him out. And, you know, it could happen. So the only reason that Jacques then even bid at that is because it's possible. There is a world in which Scotland wins that game. Know, again it's a bit like australia progressing it's a small one but it could happen so i think we'll touch on it in our preview but that article is just for mine total rubbish
1: <laughs> well uh the final placings for pool b or the placings um up to this point in the game of the tournament sorry south africa on four uh, played four games on 15 points island second place played three games there on 14 points so south africa have played all of their points and they have a buy this coming weekend uh, Scotland uh, played three points, played three games on ten points in third place. Tonga have also Tonga and Romania both have played three games and yet to score a point. So, at the moment, the it's very heavily tied between Scotland, Ireland, and South Africa for those two quarterfinal placings. And this weekend's matchups are going to be very exciting to see how that pool ends up playing out. Let's move across into Pool C. So, we've already focused a lot on the Wallabies and Portugal game, 34 14 there. So, the other game was Fiji Georgia. Now, the final score in this one was 17 12 to Fiji. But there was a world, there was a realistic opportunity in this game that Georgia had maybe not could have gone on and won the game. But at one point, they were up or they were denied a try uh, that would have seen them, I think it was 16 If they got the kick it would have been 16 nil at that point um that was a pretty big shock and i think to fiji at that point in the game that georgia was playing so well and that fiji didn't have things clicking as much as we had come to expect from them
0: i agree and i think this was always going to be the banana peel game for fiji you know coming off the huge high of their big defining tests at the start can you back it up and do what you need to do with a four point or a five point game against georgia and they did it tough, you know, a bit of a flying, you know, kick to clear the ball at the end. You know, as Georgia <laughs> raced sorry for a potential match winner. I mean, the the relief on the Fijians' faces and the fear um, of losing that game, you know, far outweighs any joy that they've given themselves their best shot to qualify since 2007. I kind of feel for the Georgians, you know, maybe they could have given us a shot. But um, Fiji did what Australia wasn't able to do and its win against the grain and win ugly and show that they can, you know, get those ones, even if they don't deserve it, they can get the wins. And you know, those champion teams are built on games like that. And how many games have you know we lost in the blood is low that we deserve to win? You know, it's all about, you know, can you yeah, turn those exactly. terrible games into a dub? And that's what the Fijians did.
1: Yep. And so currently sitting after four rounds played, we've got Wales in first place on fourteen points, Australia on eleven points, currently in second place. So there, it would take it would it's fiji's in third place on 10 points so australia is the only team that has played all of their games so far so wales fiji georgia portugal all play this coming weekend uh it would take fiji to not even get a losing bonus point against portugal for australia to go through but the re- realistically that's not going to happen um fiji should most likely get all five points in this game um, and finish Second, probably not top of the table. You would expect Wales to to go pretty well against Georgia, but as we've seen, Georgia are capable of coming close to everyone in their pool. So, um, yeah, big big game coming up for for Fiji, for Georgia, for Portugal, and for Wales. Unfortunately, the Wallabies have done all they can, and potentially we will have seen the last of them in World Cup 2023. So we've crossed into Pool D now. This is Ando's pool. Ando isn't here, but the first game was. Japan versus Samoa now this was a tight game uh, I believe I tipped Japan you tipped Samoa in our preview the final score was 28 22 to Japan so they did get the victory there uh, what were your thoughts around this game
0: I was I was really surprised actually I was really backing uh, Manu Samoa. I thought they'd be able to stand up and you know give themselves the best chance to qualify oh goodness I think the last time they might have qualified would have been 91. Maybe if they made a quarterfinal then, um, but Japan proving that there's still life in them, you know, now they give themselves an opportunity to take on Argentina for a spot in the quarterfinals, um, this coming week, I think. And, um, yeah, you know, everything, everything to play for in this pool now. We thought it was going to be the tough one, um, to watch, but it's actually turning into a pretty interesting mix. What do you take away?
1: Yeah, that's right. I think this game, this pool as well, so. The Japan-Argentina game this weekend is essentially quarterfinal week one uh, and will determine who goes through to the quarterfinal. So that's going to be a big matchup. Uh, I haven't seen too much of this game. I, I must admit I was away for this weekend. So I'm just happy that Japan got the win and, and got me some points on the tipping front. Uh, but, yeah, it would have been good to see Samoa at least get some points as well um, in World Cup 2023. The the second game of Pool D was Argentina against Chile argentina did come away 59 to 5 victors in this game now this for the history buffs out there this was the first time that we had an all south american game in a rugby world cup and the lead up the amount of singing the crowd the atmosphere was unreal for this game uh i I caught the first maybe 15 20 minutes of this game and i i was quite impressed with how Chile hung with argentina and put them under a fair bit of pressure I wasn't expecting this type of scoreline when I turned it off and, and got back up in the morning um, and, and saw that they had put 50 points on them. But um, I think that's a good statement piece from Argentina, and it's something that they've needed in to keep their World Cup dream alive uh, and a good sort of statement from Michael Checker and, and his boys.
0: I totally agree. It's the result that the Pumas had to put on Chile, you know, the, the lowest-ranked team, at the world cup you know regardless of how you like the condors and their, you know they're running rugby this is a team that you need to be pasting if you are a final contender and that's what argentina did so full credit to them and also on the south american front to add a little geography to the history the neighbors as well, they're not just you know South American, um, you know on the same continent. They border each other, and it's super cool to see that that rivalry and that passion from um, the international soccer world. You know, tick over. There are a lot of um, <laughs> slightly familiar jerseys there um, from the round ball code, yeah. Um, but yeah, no less passion. I'd say that this is up there with the you know France New Zealand game and the Ireland South Africa game as some of the best crowds we've seen so far.
1: And so the final placings in the pools uh, after four rounds, so we've got England in first place on 14 points. Argentina currently in second place on nine points. They're tied with Japan as well, nine points. So their matchup this weekend is going to be massive and will determine who goes through. I think out of everyone in the World Cup, England is the only team that has, got their f- has officially confirmed their place in the quarterfinals and can't lose it. Um, so there's, I don't think there's a chance that Argentina or Japan can catch up to England. So England are the first team in the quarterfinals for 2023, which is good to see. Uh, we then have Samoa on six points, followed by Chile on zero points. So um, that's it for pool D. That's the results there. All right, we're dragging on a little bit. So let's move into our Wallaroos and finish things up. So the Wallaroos did play their second game against uh, New Zealand for the Laura O'Reilly Cup. And unfortunately, they went down 43-3. to Now, Lockie, you were following this one for rugby.com.au. What were some of the key takeaways you got from this game?
0: Oh, it was was another tough game for our girls. And what I took away from it is that our second half fight back was really remarkable and should be applauded so we were down 31 zip at half time, and then we kept the Black Ferns scoreless for you know a tick over half an hour we had a fantastic second half where we were able to control the ball a bit better we kicked effectively sort of short king game pinning the Black Ferns back Um, but yeah we it was just a bit too little too late after that blitz at the start we withheld the first 10 minutes and then they just ran over the top of us, Catalan um, Barcolo, Barcolo a couple of tries. Sylvia Brunt was massive through the middle and um, Kennedy, Simon, and Rohit up their co-captains are just star players. So, you know, again, just showing the gulf between having that fully fledged program over there and our girls who need a bit of a boost back home.
1: I think one thing the Wallaroos we saw in the second half, particularly, that they got a fair bit of dominance and parity with New Zealand when they kept the ball in tight and they didn't allow New Zealand to throw the ball around as much. Uh, and, and and sort of let unleash their back three particularly. So I think that's a that's a big learning for them moving into World Fifteen in a few weeks. So if they can uh, take that game plan and, and apply that to when they go up against England and and, and Wales, um, they are playing Wales, aren't they? And
0: Wales and France,
1: yeah, Wales and France. Cool, good. Um, that'll that'll be a big uh, step forward for them, I believe. And if they can, can continue to to keep the ball in tight, they should go a little bit better against some of those. Nations in World 15, which we're looking forward to as well. Um, now, Lockie, we had the Australian Rugby Shield played over the weekend. Do you want to run us quickly through um, how how it went and, and who ended up getting the, the Chockeys in this one? Yeah, we'll
0: wrap it up. Um, I think we touched on it briefly in the intro, but yep, 16 teams from across the country. Uh, in the men's division, we had ACT in Southern New South Wales. Griffins take it out. They beat Perth in the final. And then in the women's competition, we had New South Wales country, Corellas, beat the Queensland Country Orchids in a really good final as well. And just quickly, if you've never heard of this competition or you haven't had the chance to watch it, jump on rugby.com today and tune in because it's a fantastic level of rugby. And personally, I would love to see this become, you know, something that we see broadcast on your your nine, um, even on the radio, maybe through Stan, because the the quality of players and the way that the game is played is something that I think a lot of people, people would find familiar Yeah, it's very open rugby, very flowing, um, big collisions, a bit of argy-bargy when it needed. And um, it was just, yeah, played in really good spirit over four days at Ballymore. So I'm keen to see it pick up in years to come and hopefully we can pump a bit more money into it and we can be previewing it, not just reviewing it and getting the message out there.
1: Yeah, and also another element of our pathway system that has been going on um, for some of the juniors particularly, the super rugby I think they're just calling it Super Rugby Under-16s and Super Rugby Under-19s competitions are currently being played and they're all televised on Sport as well. So we had the first weekend of both the 16s and 19s competition this weekend and that is a mirror of Super Rugby AU. So we've got all of the five Australian provinces represented there, Waratahs, Reds, Brumbies, Force and Rebels. Uh, some good results from the Western Force in their, in their I think it was the Under-19s game. Um, their under-16s for the Waratahs was pretty dominant in their win over um, the Brumbies as well. So some really good pathways that we've got going now for Australian rugby and something that we've all been talking about with the Wallabies and how they've sort of underperformed at this World Cup. So it's good to see that this pathway is developing and that there is something in place for them. Um, and just if you do get time, do tune in and, and give it a watch because there's some really... Um, good, exciting talent that is coming through the systems. Hopefully, Rugby Australia can do their best to keep them in the union game and not going across to Rugby League. One thing I wanted to just quickly shout out before we finish up the pod, uh, and a big shout out to Ben Hinder, who has got in touch on Facebook and drew our attention to the fact that there is, not only do we have an Australian team over in France before playing in the Australian uh, well, sorry, not the Australian, the professional Rugby World Cup, which is the Wallabies at the moment. We also have a team from Perth that's over in France playing in the amateur Rugby World Cup. So, a big shout out to the Southern Lions uh, from uh, the Southern Lions uh, in Perth, Western Australia, who have been over representing Australia in the Mondial Rugby Amateur Tournament. They got through to the semi finals. Unfortunately, they went down to the South African team a few days hey. ago. But by, by all accounts, they've done us proud. They've been out there. They've put in a great performance through the pool stages and into the finals. Um, unfortunately, didn't get able to take out the Chockeys, but well done anyway for them to getting that far in the tournament. It's great to see Australian rugby represented on the world stage in every capacity. So well done to them and well done to everyone involved in that. That brings us to the end of the podcast. We have been dragging on a little bit tonight, but uh, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks, Lockie, for joining me. We'll be back next week to wrap up uh, pull, the pool stages of the World Cup, maybe look a little bit forward to the quarterfinals and talk about who has made it, who hasn't, and and which big teams aren't going to be featured for the Rugby World Cup moving forward. Very much looking forward to doing all of that. Hopefully, Ando should be back too from his little Bali vacation, so you won't have just me dragging on a little bit as well. He can take over the, the hosting gig when he gets back, which should be good. Um, Yeah, thanks everyone for getting to this point. We'll be back next week. We'll catch you then. Bye. Bye.